0: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: This is Meant to Be Eaten, a Gastronomica podcast on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host for today, Bob Valgenti. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our new issue, volume 21.2, Features articles on topics that include commensality and creative collaboration, the politics of food systems, and race and representation. For the next several weeks, join hosts from the Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we talk with authors. My guest this week is Eric Funabashi. Eric Funabashi is a PhD candidate in Japanese history at the University of Kansas. His research interests include the role of cookbooks in different contexts of time and place. His dissertation investigates the role of domestic cookbooks in shaping women's participation in Japanese society during the Meiji period. Thank you for joining us, Eric, and welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. It's great to
1: be here. Excellent. So why don't we begin, and perhaps a good place to start, is maybe to give us a little bit of background about yourself and why, uh, in your research, you were drawn to cookbooks as uh, artifacts that can tell us and teach us about history.
2: Um, well, I I was always interested in cooking. I mean, when I, my my mother often says that the first uh, occupation that I choose was to be a. Uh, Culinary journalist, or something like that. And mm. from a very early age, I started to cook like easy things, easy recipes, just because I wanted to. I was curious about how every time my mom was cooking, I decided to learn by myself when I was like 12 or 10 years old. So, cookbooks became something that I could rely on when I wanted to learn something new. And uh, maybe, as I grew, this interest become became something um, a kind of like there are are there anything else that I can learn from these cookbooks so rather than recipes mm. and that's when I started to get interested on in cookbooks
1: mm. so was that an early point when you saw that the cookbooks were more than just collections of recipes that allowed you to cook dishes, but that they also contained a wealth of other information, some of it directly presented and some of it more contextual in a way? Um, I thought it was interesting that how cookbooks write according
2: to uh, their own purpose. Like You you have cookbooks for daily uh, recipes of daily meals. You have cookbooks more focused on banquet meals or party meals sandwiches uh and especially when you travel abroad you you see that those cookbooks like focusing on local food or the country's food uh and i thought it was very interesting how they portrayed food in, in in to their own local people and to foreigners as well
1: so this, this, this conversation, we might say that, that cookbooks are engaged with a specific audience to deliver information uh, to, in many ways, guide them in the preparation of things that they're familiar with. But then they also become a document, if you will, to those who might not have familiarity with those foods or those processes, um, and how to create those things, and they become an inroad into the culture. And that's really what is central to your research. So could you tell, uh, tell our audience maybe a little bit more about how you bridged that early interest in cookbooks to uh, your current work on your dissertation, and then in particular, uh, the article that we're discussing today?
2: Sure. Uh, well, this article, uh... I think that I can call the origin, I mean, uh, I had a conversation with my grandfather like many years ago when he told me that our family, when our family immigrated to Brazil, they didn't know how to use the ingredients we had here. So his mother and other women in the family were often taking notes and even drawing on a notebook like what kind of herbs and vegetables we could find in Brazil. And how they use them, like for cooking, for medicine purposes. However, unfortunately, uh, during the war, the police confiscated this book and burned it. And when I talked to some of my friends, some of them told me like the same history. Like the family had some kind of notebook with um, recipes and things they learn about food, how to use ingredients from Brazil. But very often, they had the same end, like they were burned by the police. And I started to think of with myself, like, maybe maybe some families could save this. Maybe some families arrived after the war, and they still have the book. And then I start to ask people on social media, like, hey, can I find, does anybody have this family book preserved somewhere? Can I consult with that? And... And very and uh, some of them they have some recipes along with this cookbook uh, that I use in this article with it's called Jitsu tekiose. That's a, uh that's a cookbook written by an immigrant and, and I and I figure out that there were many editions of this book and they they varied according to time. So uh, that's when I thought it was interesting to see if cookbooks and recipes they were kind of reflecting the society when they were published.:
1: Yeah, and that's one, I think one of the, the most fascinating uh, aspects of, of your article is precisely how you focus on this central cookbook um, called The the Companion and how this companion changes over time and how that really gives us some insights into the developing history of uh, Japanese immigration to Brazil. So could you outline maybe just very briefly for our audience uh, the arc of uh, Japanese immigration to Brazil in the in the 20th century, because that that is really central to understanding uh, the article. Which, just to inform our audience, uh, the title of the article is "Japanese Immigrants' Pantry: Creating Eating Habits and Identities with Brazilian Ingredients." So, really central to your study is is how Brazilian ingredients came to be incorporated uh, and you know, had this very interesting relationship with the uh, Japanese dishes and knowledge that was brought over uh, by the immigrants. So could you tell us a little bit about that history and how that book emerges within that history? Mm, sure, sure. So Japanese immigration to
2: Brazil started in 1908 uh, after the abolition of slavery and the decrease in the number of Europeans immigrating to Brazil, uh, the government needed to find another source of workforce to work in the coffee farms. And at the same time, the Japan had a, had a very big issue with overpopulation, and other countries in the world were not accepting immigrants anymore, or they were temporarily closed. So they made an p- agreement, and they... Uh, Japan started to send immigrants to work in Brazil. However, uh, many immigrants at that time, they had the idea that they would be able to arrive in Brazil, work hard for a few years, uh, get a lot of money, and then rebuild their life when they return to Japan. Uh, So they were not really thinking about, like, making brazil their new home country or permanently immigrating to brazil they were just temporarily here to work and get money uh, but then uh, so and they were not familiar with ingredients they arrived in brazil they were provided some ingredients that we have uh... in evidence here like rice cassava beans corn but most of these ingredients were unfamiliar to japanese and and immigrants and they didn't know how to prepare them Uh, and especially they didn't like the taste of pork fat garlic onions that were most commonly used as seasons here so that was a major issue when they arrived how can you work hard in a coffee plantation carrying bags of coffee beans without eating so they suffered a lot from uh, not being able to to properly eat well not get en- uh, enough energy to work in the coffee farms and they have difficulties with how can I eat this if I don't like it or if I don't know how to cook it uh, it was only when the work. Water- Uh, Exploded you know that They realized that we cannot go back to Japan anymore Mm -hmm. might have to to stay here in Brazil forever and Then they Started to think okay if you're going to stay in Brazil Then we have to like really become um, Full members of the society we have to learn the culture Mm -hmm. we have to learn the language and they learn um, a few things from other immigrants, like Italians, maybe Brazilians, who were already working in the coffee farms. So they, they from some of them was a matter of getting used to that. But some mm-hmm. of them went to farms or places that they were didn't have immigrants before, so they had to learn by themselves, which was mm-hmm. probably very hard for them. And The author of this book immigrated like uh, before the war in 1924. And she founded a a school in in Sao Paulo to teach uh, Japanese immigrants how to cook using Brazilian ingredients. And she wrote this book as a textbook for her classes. So those many editions of the, this cookbook represents kind, uh, an evolution of how her classes also evolved. How students were coming with more knowledge about Brazilian ingredients and how she had to upgrade or update her, her own lessons and her own uh, dishes feature in the cookbook because you don't need to, take the basic to teach the basics to students who already know the basics.
1: And this was and if I if I may interrupt, this is one of the most fascinating aspects of of the story that you tell here, this really fascinating history because it's both the history of Japanese immigrants but also in many ways, a story about this cookbook that becomes so central to the cooking experiences of immigrants to Brazil from Japan over that span of time. So you you you've already outlined for us that division between, Pre World War II and post World War II immigration groups to Brazil and how their not just their experiences differed, but how their uh, mindset differed because of you know, the prospect of whether they could actually return to Japan or not uh, radically change things. But in that cookbook, I was I was fascinated by how you know the author, an immigrant herself, not only writes this cookbook, the companion, but also founds a cooking school and that. That textbook, this textbook that she creates in many ways, is a document not only of the changing re- recipes for this population, but also the changing aspirations and increasing know-how that they gain with with these recipes. So I wanted to ask you something about the first, about the first uh, period, we might say, the pre-war period there, because it seemed that I w- I, w- I noted that. The companion in many ways and the recipes that uh, the author was attempting to create, um, the goal was to meet, it seemed to meet the taste expectations of the Japanese. The Japanese were not planning on becoming fully assimilated into the culture. So it was really a question of taste. How do you create foods that are familiar to this Japanese uh, uh, immigrant population that's arrived in Brazil using Brazilian uh, ingredients and how do you make it so it tastes good so they'll eat it because they need that nourishment um, uh, for the hard work that they're doing on the coffee plantations? Um, do you think that focus changes over time? You know, just on taste to something that becomes more of a, a process of, of assimilation into the larger society, or do you think that the desire for Japanese tastes drives that that cookbook and her teaching? all the way through its various editions
2: right i i think both situations occurred at the same time i mean there there, there certainly were um, immigrants who wanted to learn how to cook using brazilian ingredients to their taste to at least a familiar taste or something that they just won't hate hmm. uh but at some uh at the same time <clears throat> there were uh, some families who even before the war, they were probably thinking about, okay, we are not going to return to Japan because the working and living conditions in, Japan, in, in they found in Brazil was not what they expected, so under all those um, difficult, difficult conditions, they were thinking that, okay, we will not be able to accumulate money here and it is probably better to spend this money to have a better Uh, lifestyle quality instead of trying to just get money and sacrifice our health and our living here so i think the book was very interesting in in kind of talking to those two publics those two audiences because uh, if on one hand you had people who wanted to get nourishment with a familiar taste, spending the least money possible. There were some families who wanted to learn how to cook something else. You, you kind of get one uh, improvisation from what you would learn from other immigrants, but what else I can do? What else Brazilian people eat? What else even foreigners or immigrants or Italians, Germans are eating that I can learn and benefit from? So, before the war, I guess, it's very interesting to see the book trying to communicate with those two audiences, those who wanted to, who, who wouldn't mind using uh, intestines, kidneys, liver, to prepare a dish uh, in order to save money, and other 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 people wanting to learn how can i cook a meat or how can i cook a chicken in a different way
1: yeah and those that you know as you mentioned those cross pollinations with other immigrant groups in brazil uh and with uh, other culinary forms this is i think you know what what really lends, you know, from my perspective, I found really, really fascinating uh, the connections between the 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 history that you draw out in this cookbook and uh, and how this constitutes uh, identity for this immigrant population and one that is not simply uh, hybrid but rather kind of pulling from different influences and and raising in many ways the question of that identity. So. I think maybe right now is a good place to take a short break, and then we'll come back uh, in just a moment and continue our discussion.
0: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: We left off just before the break talking about uh, how the new Japanese immigrant population was pulling from different influences in the construction of its uh, own culinary identity. So I wanted to ask you, Eric, a little bit about um, something that you say in your article regarding this notion of um, you know what is uh, what is identity and what is hybrid, you note that one of the outcomes of the process that of transformation that's happening with uh, this cookbook is not the creation of hybrid dishes. You know, we might say combinations of some Japanese ingredients and techniques and some Brazilian ingredients and techniques, but rather there are hybrid menus that reflect the co-presentation of Brazilian and Japanese dishes side by side. And this seems to mirror a later point that you make about the sense of self and identity that were held, that was held by many Japanese immigrants to Brazil, that they were neither Brazilian nor Japanese, but they felt that they were both at the same time. As as you know in your article, so could you explain to us, maybe how this question of identity um, plays, you know, plays into uh, some of the differences between uh, the pre-war and the post-war immigrants to Brazil, and then ultimately how the cookbook that companion changes to reflect that in some way. Um, sure.
2: Yeah. So. So pre-war immigrants, they they had this feeling, uh, this desire to return to Japan. So they wanted to to keep this pride of being Japanese. So that's one of the reasons that they didn't fully incorporate the Brazilian culture. They didn't were not really concerned in learning the language, learning the food or the religion because they they were not expecting to return uh, to stay in Brazil for. A long time, but then when they, uh, when the post-war immigration resumed and and they met those immigrants coming from a Japan a Japan who was like nearly destroyed, and they found in Brazil an opportunity to recreate their life because their life in Japan was probably destroyed, and they they had the, had this conflict of pride of identity I I am a Japanese running from a Japan who is destroying and I am a Japan in Brazil sacrificing myself to rebuild the country so they had this conflict and they were like okay we are not you are not as Japanese as I am because I have the pride of being Japanese which you don't have because you lost the war Uh, but then uh, they were both in Brazil and the during the war, the Brazilian government was requiring all immigrants to become Brazilians and, and just deny their old old uh, nationality. So, I guess the, the the self itself. I mean, they they were they had this contrast in your in within themselves. They were Japanese people living in Brazil. So. Are you Japanese? Are you Brazilian? You you know, probably both at the same time. And that reflected in the food that they were preparing. Because even if you had at some uh, nearly 1980, uh, they had Japanese seasonings like soy sauce and and soybean paste produced in Brazil and produced in Sao Paulo. They were still not, uh, they didn't have uh, the ingredients that they had in Japan they had different ingredients so even though some uh, fusion occurred that you were seasoning Brazilian ingredients with Japanese season is the most uh, common change in their eating habits was that they were incorporating basically the Japanese white rice and the miso soup into a Brazilian dish so Mm -hmm. you had a um, um beef dish uh, that you you would normally eat with rice and beans, but Japanese immigrants were eating with white rice and miso soup uh, the vegetables that in in Brazilian cuisine are often cooked uh, stir fried uh, in in the Japanese cuisine they were turned into pickles they were pickle so You had this uh, combination of dishes in the same menu, and that reflects even today. I mean, uh, when I talked to some of my friends that we were, I was discussing uh, this Japanese immigration cuisine in in an article, they said, well, we have this even today, right? We go for a barbecue and we make rice balls. (laughs) And, And... and then you realize, yeah, that's something that probably Im- emerged from all of these changes. We got used to have Japanese white rice in our meals, even though whatever meal it is, it might be a Brazilian barbecue. I know, I know, people. I know some of my friends eat rice, white rice, with lasagna. Hmm. So that became. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say a signature, but a very common uh, change in the in their eating habits that they were incorporating dishes from other cuisines into a
1: Japanese-style meal with white rice and miso soup. Hmm. So you saw these component dishes sort of coexisting side by side, okay. uh, and I think as you know, it seems certainly to come out. In the article, that this was, you know, in the companion, had, the companion had more than just recipes; it also had information about uh, on etiquette and how to behave in social situations, how to throw parties and festivals, and and things of that nature. And so, the table, perhaps over time, comes to reflect uh, the, the the sort of the coexistence of these different cultures and these discrete dishes, uh, but. But working together and kind of fulfilling these these uh, these important roles, uh, both nutritional but also terms of of taste, and memory. So, I thought that you know, one theme that emerged, at least for me anyway, is is how cultural identity, as it's presented, I think in your research, um, it, it seems to to form. Um, less from the individual person and the object of material and also from the object of material history but is more about the role that each plays, their ways of being uh, their functions and their practices and their effects in the day to day. And this also yeah you know, I picked this up in in the way that Sato was putting together the, the cookbook as well when she names dishes as japanese using the you know the japanese name for the dish based on the cooking method that's being used as a kind of signal to those who might wish to cook that and there's also um the increasing importance of the reproduction of japanese dishes using those brazilian ingredients for example so do you think this is a fair assessment that at least what comes through in your research is this notion that identity is something that is formed through these various uh, processes and is maybe less about the objects themselves but about the role and the context in which they're they're incorporated
2: yes um, i I think I agree I mean because in in, in this situation uh it's just like you said, like Seto was using cooking methods and ingredients that they were, Japanese immigrants were familiar and using a Japanese name so she could give the, the, the reader that they were preparing Japanese food, even though there were not really anything in the methods or in the ingredients that would be exclusive from Japan. Uh so this process of cooking something that is familiar and the role of the food in in being familiar to to these Japanese immigrants uh I think was a very important uh piece of their identity building because you are you, you, you can keep a contact with your um uh, with your mother country in a ways that other people can also do because if you have a flag or if you sing the anthem in your, in your house that might just be you but if more people are eating the same Japanese dish I think that's a very big influence on how you preserve this uh, for them to preserve this national this Japanese identity even though they were living in Brazil and they kids and their children were already Brazilians if they had children.
1: Yeah. And that seems you know, part of the, the genius of, of the companion that Sato puts together, you know, is this really this instructional textbook is that it's, it's sensitive to the changes, the material changes and the aspirations over time and, and then transforms that into dishes and practices um, that that's all seem to be heading towards that same goal that you just mentioned about finding a way to preserve that identity within this you know, constantly transforming and complex society. Um, so I'm curious, were there any s- recipes either within the companion or uh, you also looked at some, you were able to find some family recipes that had been saved from, you know, and, and some different other documents as well. Were there any re- recipes that surprised you that you, you were just, you know, for whatever, re- either because of uh, the nature of the dish or because of um, perhaps the ingenuity behind it in some way? Uh, w- was there anything in your research that, that stuck out?
2: Um, I, I was surprised with the number uh, the, or the amount of s- recipes to prepare sweets mm. because uh, in, in, in Brazil we have a lot of sugar cane, which is sweeter than the uh, I think it's beet sugar that they had in Japan. So and today, I mean. Uh, it's very common to see Japanese like, second and third generation Japanese Japanese Brazilians who doesn't like Like Brazilian sweets that much because they are too sweet mm-hmm. so they kind of a uh, 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 Return to the region. They, they prefer Japanese sweets because they are they have less sugar so mm-hmm. the amount of uh, uh, Sweets sweets recipes and the amount of sugar used on those recipes I thought it was surprising to to, to I, I, we I, we can't know if they were really preparing those recipes very often but for me too, the fact that they were there uh, means that they Japanese ha- uh, immigrants had this interested in interest in learning uh, how to prepare sweets that were mm. completely different from Japanese sweets.
1: Great. I think we're just about getting to the end of our time, so maybe just for one final question, if you could, uh, if it's possible to answer it briefly. But I'm curious if, if the story continues, uh, you know, so you document the transformations of this recipe book over time and how that mirrors the the progress of, you know. Japanese immigrants in Brazil. What is what is the state of uh, Japanese cuisine uh, in Brazil today? Is it is it further transforming either due to changes in Brazil or you know the changes that have impacted it from from uh, the global market, perhaps?
2: Um, I think we have
1: uh,
2: very different scenarios there. I mean, the home cooking it certainly is. Uh, Stopped on those uh, hybrid menus. Um, my family and I know many other families who still who still has uh, white rice with other side dishes for their daily meals. Mm-hmm. And I see in, in in restaurants in at least in São Paulo, some of them are trying to uh, focus on the. Food that you can actually find in Japan. So they were they are not really using those uh, combinations, but rather focusing on what is kind of authentic, if I can say that's authentic. Mm-hmm. The authentic food that you can find in Japan. And I think uh, I think cuisine is something that is always changing. So that's the reality. That's what I find here in. My house in a big city in São Paulo, but I cannot say I cannot say the same for small uh, small cities in the countryside where Japanese immigrants probably didn't have the same access to ingredients as we have here.
1: So, thank you, Eric Funabashi, for joining us today. Listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, Volume Twenty One Point Two. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us next week as we talk to Costanza Ocampo Rader on When the Rainbows Bring the Crawfish.